Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the best town in the United States, Detroit, Michigan. Undoubtedly. Uh, that's what I hear. So, guys, this is part two of our interview with Robin Henderson, who um, has an exhibit here at the Ruther Library. Uh, called Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman, an exhibit of art and archives dealing with the life of Matilda Robbins. That was her uh, grand grandmother. But Matilda Robbins was a socialist, wobbly, writer, and mother. And so this part two will continue the, on this journey with her through um, how she became radicalized and started being more active within the movement of the Wobblies uh, rather than a participant. Uh, we travel from uh, uh, New England, New York, Detroit, all the way down south, South Carolina, and eventually ending up in Los Angeles. Now, what's interesting, though, she's the one that led, yeah, she led it, the first auto strike in the United States here in Detroit in 1912, I believe it was. Um, and it was against the, was it Studebaker? So kind of timely, don't you think, folks? It is very timely and completely unplanned. <laughs> <laughs> this has been scheduled for months. <laughs> the interview, not the strike. The interview has been scheduled for months. The GM strike, not quite as long. I mean, archives have power, but not that kind of power. <laughs> not, we don't, we, no. <laughs> so here again is Robin telling us this great collaboration she had with her grandmother. Matilda Robbins. Okay, back to Matilda. Yes. And we've talked about the romantic sides. When did she start being active? Well, I think in Bridgeport, um, she was she joined the IWW, and she was also a member of the Women's Trade Union League, mm -hmm. and um, and she was a member of the Socialist Party, and so was her her brother that was closest to her in age, David, um, and one of the researchers that I met doing this work, uh, Steve Thornton, um, found my grandmother's brother's. Um, uh, name in the list of the Socialist Party dues that had been paid. So I got to see that, and that was kind of fun to see that he was really there. And and also the address where they lived, so I was able to go see the house there. So they stayed in, they stayed in Bridgeport for a number of years, I think seven or so years. And then Matilda's relationship with Ben was so fraught that she decided that she had to get out of Bridgeport because everybody knew about the affair and it was hard. It, she didn't like that kind of attention. She was not, he was very flamboyant about his affair. She wanted to keep it personal and private. Um, and so she decided to go to Boston. And in Boston, she met um, some young women who were uh, educated and were conducting surveys for, um, for the state of Connecticut about uh, labor issues. And she became um, a helper on their research. And 
I got the, and people got very interested in Matilda, who had an eighth grade education, but seemed so much better educated than that, and and couldn't believe how well she spoke English and how um, fluent she was and how well she wrote and how quickly she learned even you know how to keep records and do statistics and that sort of thing. Wow. So the um, the Lawrence strike occurred in Massachusetts. And she was peripherally involved in that in that strike, but she, no leadership at all, just just there and mm-hmm. support support, yeah. But Ben really wanted to be a leader, and so he was. There was another labor activity that happened in Little Falls in upstate New York, and he and Bocchini, an Italian um, wobbly. Uh, were sent to Little Falls to orga- help organize that that strike. It was a spontaneous walkout of textile mill workers, and uh, they were immediately jailed. And so, Matilda was sent um, by Vincent St. John hmm. to to go and help out. And it was her first. It, that was her first strike. How in old Little- was she? She was twenty six by that time. Wow! First strike. Yeah. The leadership is already jailed, and IWW sends her out. Yeah. <laughs> Go fix this. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it's really funny because um, it wasn't a big strike. It was a small town, um, but there were about, I think, fifteen or 1,600 workers that walked out. I think there were two main mills there. There were other manufacturing um, businesses there, too, but, but these two big mills um, were the ones that where the walkout had occurred and Matilda just just got in there and organized the workers and then at some point Big Bill Haywood showed up and I think Flynn and Tresca showed up and you know to kind of give a little glitter and glamour to the strike and sure. and kind of make the workers feel like you know they could hold on and and they did and it was one of the few strikes that the Wobblies one, um, I mean, one of the very few that they actually where they actually did get some of their issues mm-hmm. uh, met. So um, that sort of launched her. Now her career as a labor organizer wasn't that long. No, it was very short. It was very short, but it was she was all over the place. But she was she was like the traveling saleswoman for the IWW. That's she right. She was everywhere. And it's interesting, what, one of the few mentions that I found of Matilda from somebody else who was present during that time was in Elizabeth Gurley's Flynn's memoir. And she calls Matilda a capable little woman. Seriously? That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what that's she she's And that was it. And that's all they mentioned. That's all. They, they, <sighs> but she was capable. She, yeah, so she, she um, they, they sent her to Ohio. Right. And then we're in Detroit. We got to talk about Detroit. We do have to talk about Detroit. So she arrives in Detroit. Yeah. She arrives in Detroit. By this time, the Wobblies have realized that they have a pretty good um, speaker there, somebody who can attract a crowd because she's tiny. She's under five feet tall and she's young and she's passionate. And so she mounts a, a, a soapbox in front of the Studebaker factory, 
which is right next to the Ford plant. And you can still see that Ford plant today. And I've been it. there. I drive by it every day. Yep, yep. <laughs> but there was a Studebaker plant right adjacent to it. And Matilda started, and Matilda, there had been a strike. There was a strike that had started, and she was on the soapbox, you know, haranguing the the crowds. And at lunchtime, all the workers from the uh, factories around there would come out to hear this girl that was so cute and speaking. And what did the press call her? Um... Uh, The Little Russian Beauty. (laughs) Now, we all know that's code for... Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> anyway, go She's on. She's beautiful and Jewish. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> just, just, just to clarify. Yes. Yeah. But go on. Yeah, so she's on the soapbox and, getting the workers riled up. And I think Henry Ford probably got pretty upset by this going on. This was going to really cause havoc in his factory. So Matilda was arrested. And she was arrested the way labor agitators were often treated, put in jail just to kind of break things up and make everybody go home. And then, you know, in court, she's accused of obstructing traffic. That's that's what that was the charge against her. And here is this tiny little woman with the police that who she was obstructing, who towers above her. And the judge finally just says, this is ridiculous. So uh, I think she had to pay a dollar fine or something like that. Probably. Okay. But did she stay in Detroit after the arrest? Not very long. No. She, they, went on, they went on over to Packard and tried to drum up some support over there. And um, but I don't think she was here. Probably not more than a couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. That's that's. Probably, but yeah. it was the first strike ever in the auto industry in Detroit. So that's why she is actually known here for her work here better than any place else that she was as an organizer. Can we summon Matilda today for the GM work workers? she would be so proud (laughs) that they're still going at it in fact in her memoir she laments that this that they started a really good thing here but it languished for 30 years it did until until the 30s yeah Yeah. legal but uh, they, they started the seed. They, they, they dropped the seed yeah. here in Detroit. That's and, right. And that's what the IWW did a lot of. They did drop the seeds until a little f- more formation was happening, a little more structure was established. But mm-hmm. it laid the seeds out there for that's them. That's right. Exactly. Well, the IWW was, had all different kinds of political ideas. I mean, some Wobblies were anarchists, some were socialists, some were communists. And some were more conservative and some were more radical. But um, Matilda considered herself one of the more radical she ones. She was on the radical side. Yeah. Absolutely. So next, she uh, they send her down then down to South Carolina. Is that correct? Yeah. I she, can only imagine her, the, the Russian beauty, showing up in Jim Crow South, South Carolina. Was it textile still, too? It was, it was a, a cotton mill, yeah. Cotton mill, yeah. What yeah. was that like for her? Well, she she said she'd never seen such poverty. 
Yeah. It was she was totally shocked by the poverty and she had and in fact I think she had good relationships with the workers and she would ha- she did some some of the same things that Elizabeth Gurley Flynn did she asked to meet with just the women mm-hmm. and tried to organize the women um and she, she was incredibly um impressed by the horrible diet that people had and the miserable lives that they led. And for the first few days that she was in Greenville, she lived with a with a worker family. And I think it just was too painful to her to be in this miserable hovel with too many kids and not enough to eat. And so she she boarded a little further away from town with a middle-class family. And that's you should read that part of the book because it's 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 very interesting how she talks about her conversation with the woman who um who was the the woman of the house where she was boarding. And I and she mentions that they were middle class but a little bit down on their luck and so they needed to take in a boarder in order to make ends meet. And she Matilda left all of her radical literature out on the table in her room, and she said she knew that the woman had seen it, and she, but she ne- always treated her with, with respect. But Matilda does not mention this, but I've, so from some of the reading that I've done si- uh, since then about this period, I think she encountered some real hostility, some, some violence. I, I, I would only assume so. Yeah. Um I read a description in in a book that was put out by the communist a little pamphlet by the communist party in the 30s um about some organizing that had happened and the narrator of this um this little pamphlet says that she had been talking with the workers this was in the 30s about and they said some woman came down from the north during the war, meaning World War One, which was when Matilda was there, and she, um, oh, I wish I could remember the exact words that, that were used, but something like she really frightened them by her talk of, of radical, her, her radical talk and, and fiery rhetoric, but she also excited them by what, by what she said. But some, some thugs came and threw rotten eggs at her and told and drove her out of town and told her never to come back and she did come back but she didn't stay at some point she she had to leave i think she was just exhausted and probably terrified she never mentions it in her book but i'm sure that that woman had to be matilda because the iww had only two women organizers That's at right. that time and matilda was one of them and elizabeth Gurley flynn was the other one and she never went down south and uh, yeah. no and and nobody would come to help matilda said they're ready they're ready i think we can do something you've got to go send, send somebody else i can't do it anymore i'm exhausted and she was scared too i think mm-hmm. but she doesn't ever say that humble you know why yeah. why say it i mean here she is yeah. doing the best she can why admit that fear but it was scary down there it must have been just yeah. terrifying yeah yeah. So so basically she burned herself out. Yeah. And when did she move to Los Angeles finally? 
Well, she went back to New York at that point, and she started working at, she had, by this time, she had taught herself typing and shorthand. And so she started taking jobs as a stenographer or doing typing for people. And um, so she started, she became a white-collar worker. And um, then discovered that she was pregnant. And Matilda was always very good with money. She was good at saving. And then when the funds ran out, she was good at borrowing. And she always paid her debts, but she people helped her. And and that's something that I find very interesting about this this history, is that there she was in a milieu, uh, a socialist milieu, where people really did kind of take care of each other and looked out for each other and trusted one another. Mm-hmm. And I think people admired. Matilda, because she was so plucky, and she was so smart. And so she managed to save enough money so that she could go to Nantucket to have the baby. And there were some rich socialists that owned property in Nantucket. They were New Yorkers. I think he was in the stock market or something. And um, so they gave her a little cottage to stay in, near their house, and um, and she had the baby in the cottage hospital in Nantucket and then spent the rest of the summer um, taking care of her new baby, and she said it was one of the most blissful times of her entire life, but in the fall she had to go back to work again, and she had to go back to New York, and she always hated New York. Why did she hate New York? It was dirty, and it was crowded, and there was, she says, not a blade of grass. (laughs) And she came from a small town in in the Ukraine where there were trees, and there was a river nearby, and it wasn't the East River. Um, (laughs) Especially back then. Yeah, Um, I mean, it was really polluted. So she was was one of these people trapped in the city, but yearning to be... Among trees and yes. flowers. Yes, and so and every summer she would try to put enough money aside so she could get away from the city for a while. And she really wanted my mother out of that environment. She really wanted her baby not to have to live like that. So sometimes she um, had my mother boarded in someplace in the suburbs or in the country, Um while she worked in the city. And it was I think it was very painful for both of them to be separated. I'm sure, but how could she do the long hours of work and have a child and do try to trust and have either date what kind of day, whatever daycare there was? Oh, and she talks about that in the memoir, how difficult it was to find decent uh, daycare. And, you know, sometimes and she, she goes around trying to find a good nursery school and she's not doesn't think any of them are up to her standards, and the ones that are too expensive, and they don't really like this single woman anyway. They don't really understand why she doesn't have a husband. And I think Matilda was very careful about calling her. She called herself Mrs. Robbins, and um, she, you know, she, she knew how to stay safe and keep a job. Uh, and so, and she sometimes would, you know soften her politics so that it so that she could 
get ahead. But if she was questioned, she would be very honest about what her opinions were. And th that comes through in, in her memoir, too. She, she has some very interesting encounters with people. That's pretty cool. I mean, as, as a person who has been really in the thick of it, still modest enough to not really wear it on her, uh, on her sleeve, but if asked... Yep, this is what I believe. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to push it, but hey, if you open up the can. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that was and and she was very outspoken if if she was invited oh, to yeah, speak. Oh yeah. I'm sure. And I'm sure she had the intelligence to make a great argument. Oh, she was she used to argue with us. <laughs> <laughs> Politics. She, she was even further left than you guys? Oh yeah. <laughs> I've come around, but, oh, I was a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> she was always a socialist, always a socialist. All right, so she makes the decision, get out of the East Coast, move to the West. Yeah. Right. My mom was about six, and she moved to Los, Los Angeles. She was intending to go to San Francisco, but she arrived in San Francisco in July, and she had visions of sunny California. And San Francisco is really can be very cold yeah. and miserable in July with fog and mist everywhere. And it's so true. The coldest Fourth of July. I'm sorry. It actually happened to me. Fourth of July was the coldest for me in San Francisco. I had my sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she had a friend um, who actually was pretty well known in socialist circles at the time. His name was Fred Moore, and he was a lawyer, and he was, for a time, he was Sacco and Vanzetti's lawyer. And she traveled across the country with Fred, and he came from Southern California, and he said, you know, Matilda, it is very cold. This is the way San Francisco is. It's never warm like it is in sunny Southern California. And so she moved down to Los Angeles. She went on to Los Angeles and settled there and worked for many, many years as a um, social worker for a Jewish welfare agency in Los Angeles. And that was in the days when she didn't when when you didn't need to have any kind of um, advanced degrees to be a social worker, and she was hired because she spoke Yiddish, but she was assigned a Ladino caseload. They were all Sephardic Jews in Los Angeles, and so so she went to school. She went to night school and learned Spanish. Tried to learn Spanish. Look at her. Oh yeah, she was always up for a new challenge, a new intellectual challenge. That's nice. That's right. Yeah. So I, I understand that she also, according to the book, she organized, continued organizing. Oh yeah, she tried to. She did organize her fellow social workers. <laughs> <laughs> Almost lost her job because of, course, of it. <laughs> of course. Um, that basically covers the book, right? And our exhibit. What do you think she would feel like today, looking at not only the GM strikes going on right now, but also the Me Too movement, the women marching in Washington? against Trump and all this, this radical woman from the early 20th century, who might I add, excuse my French, great badass. <laughs> You're <laughs> not the first who'd said that. Oh, okay, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was reading it, it's like, wow, she's amazing. Um, what do you think she would feel about today? You know, I, I wonder, I think she would be shocked and horrified at how little progress we appear to have made after all the struggles that she 
went through. And then we all did during the 60s, during the civil rights era, which she was very supportive of. Um, she was incredibly outraged by the internment of the Japanese during World War II. She has seen all this stuff, but I don't think she would ever have imagined that it could get as bad as it has and as polarized as it seems to be. But I also think she would be very elated by the feminist movement and and the the women really taking you know taking trying to take control of their own bodies and their own lives i think she would be very happy that the auto workers are on strike in detroit right now after you know 103 years or whatever it's been 106 years mm -hmm. since she led the first strike that's right um, I think she would be surprised that we haven't made more progress, but I think she would be, I think she would be encouraged by the kind of, of resurgence, I think, of, of pushback that right. is happening now. And, and I, I, I feel a, a somewhat despairing myself at times because, you know, I lived through McCarthy I lived through the civil rights era. I went through the abortion struggles. And I can't believe that we it's always, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But I guess that's just the way we are. I guess that's the way we are. And we just have to keep Keep getting ahead. back up on our soapbox and yeah. let people know. And let people know and, and keep pushing for our rights because... If we give up, then we're really doomed. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story, Matilda. Really appreciate it. Well, I really enjoy the opportunity to, to do that. I love to talk about my granny. Granny was awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library. No. It's just Ruther. Tales from the Ruther. Um. <laughs> what is our name? <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> yeah, it's Tales from the Ruther Library. Yeah. From the Ruther Library? I think so. What are we called? I don't know. I don't know. Okay.